your stories don't define you, how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and a storytelling coach to guide you in collecting your most inspiring, meaningful stories so you can demonstrate your values, skills, and vision. Whether you're interviewing for a job, being interviewed for a podcast or other media, or if you're a leader who wants to truly connect, inspire, and engage any audience. Today's episode was a wonderful surprise for me and for my guest. I met Tracy Rubel via an interaction on the LinkedIn platform and knew immediately this was a woman I wanted to know more about. She's wicked smart, kind, and thoughtful, and started an amazing, powerful nonprofit called Sidewalk Talk. We scheduled a call just to spend some time getting to know each other. And within five minutes, I realized what a waste it would be not to hit the record button. I asked her permission. She agreed. And what you hear next is the result. You'll notice it's as if you just stepped into a room in the middle of a deep, wonderful conversation between two friends and were welcomed as if we planned for you to be there. Tracy's warmth, humor, and vulnerability simply shine, and I'm so grateful she agreed to share this conversation with you, our listeners. Enjoy. I am so grateful to have Tracy Rubel on the Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will podcast. And I just hit record in the middle of a conversation because I knew it was going to be so rich and we didn't really plan for this. So listeners, you are going to hear some really good stuff in a few minutes. So hang on. Tracy, you were saying that as a psychotherapist, we often focus so much on how the relationship with our parents affects us and the long-term impacts. And we don't always talk about sibling relationships and their long-term impact. Can you go into a little more conversation about that? Well, since I know that your podcast is about story, I'm going to try to not be Miss Psychotherapist Clever Guru Gal and tell you all the theory behind it and share my story. Would that be helpful? Thank you. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I've been in therapy for 25 years. I had a difficult childhood. My mom was married six times. And she was a teen mom. She didn't want to have me. She tried to abort me. And so the legacy that I've always worked with in therapy was being the unwanted child. And I've been a therapist now for 18 years. And I've done a lot. I mean, yeah, sure, there's parts of me that can still get tender around that. But I feel like I've got a handle on it. I know that that sounds weird to say, yeah, I've got a handle on it. But I know how it shows up. I know how I defend against those feelings. I know how all my sneaky defense mechanisms hide out. But there's been this crappy thing that I've been doing. I I have this side hustle that I do, which is I, I accidentally started a nonprofit that ended up getting really big. And I started getting really pissed off every time a young guy would call me on the phone because we'd get a lot of press or we were on TV or an Oprah magazine and they'd say, I want to pick your brain. I want to find out how you did that. Or another guy who maybe is my age, but he's like, how, how did you monetize that? And I'm just like, why do you, and I would just get 
I would say that my level of anger was sure it's appropriate to be modestly angry because my anger would be letting me know that I'd want to set a boundary, but that's not the kind of anger I was feeling. I was feeling like righteous rage, like, "Ah, how dare you? You're trying to take something from me. (laughs) I'm like, what is going on? And I really wrestled with this and I started to feel ashamed about it. I think that people thought I was kind of a, you know, especially some of these guys would reach out and I think they thought I was kind of a jerk because I was so prickly. And then I, it really hit me. And I think this is how you and I met is that you, I shared this story kind of publicly for the first time in this silly LinkedIn comment. I think it was on your post. It was. (laughs) And I loved it. And I think I was like probably crying when I typed it. But I just said, look, I have had this sibling competitiveness and it didn't matter how hard I worked, didn't matter what I did. See, I'm feeling ugh, still so painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My brother was kind of an F up, gotten lots of trouble and I was the straight A superstar track athlete but he got all the attention with very little effort. And let's, I want to speak to privilege here a little bit. Sometimes men have unearned privileges that plays right into my brother stuff where he had unearned privileges. So this is where my own childhood trauma can make me not a very good feminist because I'm moving from a trauma response in my feminism and activism rather than a conscious centered adult. I'm like mm-hmm. a 10 year old. <laughs> so that's my story. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Well, I, I understand that. And I am fortunate to have had a, a relatively, <laughs> I, no, no family is perfect and no family is perfectly functional. There, we all are dysfunctional. It's the word family basically means dysfunction. Um, which is why I did a whole keynote on why your workplace shouldn't be called a family. (laughs) It was um, very successful. People really appreciated it. Uh, But family comes charged. And I am one of the fortunate ones. I'm very close with my family, even though my parents divorced when I was 20, 21. Um, But I have an older brother and younger sister. And there were, my brother and I went years barely talking after being super close growing up. And um, we went through a few years where he was with women who weren't very nice to me. And he kind of took that on. And um, we just we just didn't spend any time together. My mom was so sad because we had been so close. My mom would say, you know what, please, please figure this out. And eventually we did. And he is one of my greatest advocates. And we are so lucky and I was saying in the beginning of this conversation, if he knew some of what I was still holding on to from our childhood, he'd be mortified because he's not that person anymore. So I get it. Um, our siblings have huge roles in our psyches and in how we react to the things that happen in our lives because we have this baggage. And it totally makes sense. So I want to come back to that response with you. And what was it that made you finally go, oh, 
this is something I really, I need to figure out. And if not figure out, at least just like you did with your relationship with your mother, find the tools to deal with what was happening in your heart and in your brain. Yeah. Well, something shifted in my context, my outer life, which was I had more ease, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that that ease opened up some space to begin asking questions. Without the ease, I would have been in the treadmill uh, and I wouldn't, I think these things I would still feel quite entitled to react to, right? Right. And not question it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would feel this righteous feminist, like, screw you, buddy. And it was the ability to have some space open up and drop into pleasure and pace and yeah, there was a lot of other values alignment that was going on at exactly the same time. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes when we're trying to work on something, there are two things that we're either trying to do. We're feeling really ashamed about the bad behavior. So we're moving from shame or it's so darn uncomfortable. We just want to get out of the discomfort. And neither yeah. of those true things were totally true. A little bit of shame, a little embarrassment. It felt like a healthy embarrassment though. I wasn't feeling like a horrible person. Um, it just felt like an honest curiosity that, huh, there's something else here. Mm. Mm. I love that. I love that on so many levels. It's, it's why I coach and it's probably part of why you do what you do with your clients is being able to give others that grace and space to consider the why behind their reaction, not just a response, but a full-on reaction to say, have you ever thought about why this is happening? Um, Because it's not good for us to have those reactions, especially if it ends up causing any kind of shame. So um, I interviewed this amazing woman, it was Sabrina Woods years ago, and she told me that in her schooling, one of her professors, as they were talking about bias, said, you are not responsible for the first thought that pops into your head. You're just not. You are a product of your environment, your upbringing, all of of those things that happened in your life to you that you didn't have control over. That's where that voice comes from. So you are not responsible for the very first thought. But hell, you are responsible for every single one after that. And what what that did for me is it gave me exactly what you're talking about. It gave me the space to stop shaming myself for thinking something that felt judgmental or icky. And it gave me that space to think, why did that thought pop into my head? And why does that matter to me? That's none of my business. That isn't about me. Why did that thought pop into my head? That curiosity, leaving space for the curiosity. Oh, I love that you just said that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I bank my life on that, on being curious, right? I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm curious about lots of things. Um, I guess, you know, you and I have similar careers in that regard. I, I feel like I, yeah, and it's also fun. 
It's <laughs> look, I mean, you're, you talk about storytelling a lot and I, I think I, I, I wish people, this is what I, okay. Yeah. Can I just complain about psychotherapy? <laughs> you can do whatever you want on my show. I, I, I sometimes feel like psychotherapy colludes with people's shame at times because we are so focused. We have to be careful about this fix-it idea. We have to be careful about um, always wanting to eradicate some bad behavior, always wanting to change this thing, because that if that's the foreground, then everything that you're doing in therapy is shame-based, I think. And so sometimes that's the first place that you've got to go. And, and I often find that therapy is colluding with something in our culture that treats our, ourselves like objects that need to become more efficient producers or workers. And I don't want the therapy that I do to collude with that. I always tell people what I'm doing is liberation work. I want whatever you, whatever's true for you to be free to be expressing itself um, if you want to be a jerk one day and you're choosing that, great. As long as you're not harming someone, right? But um, this idea of coming in and fixing something to me is not liberation, it's oppression. Because it implies something's broken in the first place. And it also sees the self so narrowly because you're fixated on the thing that's broken, I'm like, but what about all the hundreds of other things about you too? And systemically, how that might be. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you another story. Can I tell you another story? Another, please. Another yes. Tracy just had this, like, had her lid flipped in her own therapy. So I was in therapy this week and I have a really good therapist right now. He's, I'm, in, I'm in an analysis. So I'm doing deeper, woo, weird, let's interpret what's going on in your unconscious. And I said, hey, my, my clinical work with my clients has been really out of alignment with my values. I've been doing this kind of fixing therapy that I do not agree with. And this has been going on for four weeks and I don't have access to my intuition and my creativity. And I'm feeling pressured in the room with clients to make sure they get their money's worth and I'm exhausted. And he said, huh, when, when did you say this started? And I said, about four weeks ago. And he goes, huh. And I went, what happened four weeks ago? I'm like, oh. And he goes, what's that? And I said, well, I just free associated to four weeks ago is when I signed the contract with this book coach to write a book. And I'm paying a lot of money for me kind of stretched financially to hire this book coach. And I said, I feel guilty that I'm paying this kind of money and spending it on myself to write this book. And second, it's the first time that I have ever produced something where I don't have any ego about the book being successful. I just really enjoy it. I enjoy this book coach a lot. I'm really learning a lot. I love getting up every morning and writing and researching and having my brain twisted and having to challenge what I'm thinking. And he said to me, yeah, 
So you're using your therapy office as your moral redemption ground because you don't feel like you deserve the pleasure of writing this book. And I just went, damn, that's it. So um, that's been been my next story is like, oh, yeah. Uh And I think that this, this happens a lot too. I don't even think we always tell our stories accurately. We tell stories based on what we think people want to hear or based on the brand that we're building. <laughs> and I'm like, well, oh, you just tell the pleasure, tell a story for the pleasure of telling the story. Well, and there are so many times we tell the story that we think we need to tell. Mm. And then somebody asks exactly the right, the right question that makes us go, oh, I was telling that all wrong. And, and that actually happened um, a few years ago. I was, I did a writing project of, a commissioned writing project that didn't go very well. And the guy who was the the client, I had already had an interaction with him that made me question whether I needed to work with him again. Mm. The flags had gone up already, but I ignored them because I thought, you know, cash, mm-hmm. this is a few years ago. So I did the project and it did not go well. And he, instead of coming back with a professional response, like this isn't what I was looking for, it mm-hmm. was, he raked me across the coals, all oh. these reasons. It was a, a shitty writing job and it, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't my best work. And I knew that, which is why I allowed it to feel like shame, even though his response was just totally inappropriate, but I will never forget right after this interaction, I went for a hike. I'm like, I'm going up the mountain. I need to get clear my head and get some fresh mm-hmm. air, brought my dog and took the hardest route up the mountain. It's basically a thousand feet straight up mm. called the power line trail. Cause it goes along the power line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like straight up the mountain. And I get up most of the way and I'm looking down and I'm breathing hard and I'm thinking, yeah, I am resilient. I'm strong. You know, I'm thinking all of these good words and I get up to the top and I drink my water, give the dog some water. And then I hike back down and I'm telling my friend the next day about this experience and how strong I felt. And she was like, and self-punishment. Hmm. And I realized I was telling the story from the perspective of an optimist and not a realist in mm. this case. And while there are worse ways to punish yourself than mm-hmm. to take a big long hike, um, but if I'm not doing it with intention, then I'm telling myself the wrong story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So I would like to hear another story about um, when you had an aha moment with a client as opposed to in therapy. Cause I've had a few where I'm like, Oh my gosh, that was more about me than it was about him. Oh, do you Can want you stories talk? about where I were about an aha moment about me? Oh, geez. Yeah. In a, so I'll give you an example. I was working with a client <laughs> that um, wanted to improve sales through storytelling and he needed a creative outlet. So I could, I just know when people need a creative outlet. And I sent him colored pencils and a coloring book and said, go, go at it, have fun with this. And he did, he sat there. I was like 15 minutes because he, he said, of course, no, I'm not going to do that. I, it's not my thing. I said, just 15 minutes twice this week. That's not much, right? Right after dinner, before you clean the kitchen or after you clean the kitchen, just spend 15, set the timer. And one time after our next client appointment, he said, 
So I set my timer for 15 minutes and two hours later, I was finishing up <laughs> this page that I colored in. And he was telling me all about this page. And I said, well, what are you going to do with it? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, are you going to tear it out of the book? Are you going to keep coloring in the book and just keep the pages in it? Are you going to put it on your refrigerator? Like, what are you going to do with this finished product? And he said, well, I haven't really thought about it. And I was kind of insistent. Like, well, you just colored this beautiful thing. What are you going to do with it? He's like, well, maybe I'll give it to my mom. Now, this is a 50-year-old man. He said, maybe I'll give it to my mom. She'll put it on her fridge. She still likes that kind of stuff. And he laughed. And I'm like, oh, that's perfect. Walked away from that appointment thinking, why was I so insistent about this? It was almost like I was contradicting him. Mm. He is my client. Why was I so insistent? I realized I still have some aspects of need for external gratification. Mm -hmm. So when I finish a piece of work, because I'm a potter, if I finish throwing a pot, I want to give it to somebody so they can tell me how wonderful it is. Mm -hmm. And I thought that wasn't him at all. That was, boy, total mind-blowing experience. And I'm guessing you've had multiple of those because you've been doing this longer than I have. Yeah. And at a completely different level, deeper level. God, there's just so many. And the ones that are current, I'm not going to share because a current no, client might, no. think, might identify themselves. Um, yes. No. Um, so many, so many. You know, 70% of my work is working with couples. And there is one wow. repeated thing that I have to be really mindful of because I was a kid of six divorces. Oh, dear. If my, sometimes my five-year-old will show up in the room with my couples therapy clients. It doesn't happen so much anymore because it's been so long since I've been doing it. But every once in a while, even still, but I, I catch it now and I, I do these really funny, I have all kinds of funny little imagination things I do to help myself with these moments. But I had one couple in particular where I'm like, what the heck is going on with me? And I'm like, oh, you're five trying to keep mom and dad together. Oh. And this is not the work for a five-year-old. Moreover, a five-year-old is not seeing the system clearly. And I was colluding with one of the partners against, the, I mean, I was completely entering the system, which I, you know, now I supervise other therapists. And so you have to be on the lookout for that because it's really, it happens anyway, because we are biased. Mm -hmm. I just call it out now. I say, hey, you might feel like I'm taking your side and I might be. <laughs> Usually just name <laughs> it. Or I'll tell couples, I am definitely going to piss you off at some point in the couples therapy because you're going to believe I'm taking your partner's side. If you feel that, ask me. And if I am, I will own it honestly. Mm. And I think that that's partly learned from that story, from this very mm. acute moment in time where I forced my, my five-year-old to relive her parents' tension, you know? Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I bet that's one that has to keep coming up. That's not something you just get over. Nope. It doesn't so disappear from your work. I, I had a, she showed up with a case recently. And I, what good therapists do is when you have something like that, you pay for extra consultation. You usually call up two or three extra people and say, all right, help me constellate this case differently. But outside of the seeing the case better, I have a little chat with my five-year-old. And I have this whole little imaginal, so I have a door in my office and I say, hey, sweetie, 
it was so painful for you when you were little, when you had to be in these situations. And I don't want you to be in these situations anymore. You don't have to do this. And so I make up this whole story. I'm going to sit you out here and you're going to have a coloring book. And you're going to stay out here the whole time. Because I'm going to be the one doing the session, okay? And I literally will have these conversations with my five-year-old before I enter a couple session that might stimulate this part of me, right? Mm-hmm. That, that totally makes sense. I, I think I might use that in the future, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I have zero credentials in therapy so or counseling of any kind, but I do find that that part of my um, self-consciousness or uh baggage my own experiences definitely sometimes play a role so i may use that if you don't mind yeah, of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, i that's mean it's a great tool i really have always come up in and kind of a model that the self is made up of parts of self that the self isn't unitary and it's a very gentle way of getting to meet and dialogue with different aspects of ourselves you know when i started out in gestalt therapy and then internal family systems and sensory motor therapy, all these different forms of therapy think of parts of self. So, yeah. I like that. So tell me about the book. I would love to just learn a little bit about what was it that, um, first of all, that made you realize it was time to do that? And second, what are you most excited about? What was a time where you sat down to write that you were just like on fire? Mm. So I ran this street listening project. I started putting my therapist chair on a public sidewalk out front of my office in San Francisco, and it it got all kinds of media attention. And that's when I had all these people calling me. And that whole seven years of my life, I learned more. I, I learned things from the street that you don't learn in your graduate degree in psychology. And so there were two, two reasons why I wanted to write the book. One, I wanted to honor myself and what I put out there for seven years. I think that I didn't. And I was feeling like the world had to honor me. But the book is actually me honoring me and saying, hey, this is about you putting a stake in the ground for what you did, for what you learned, and for wanting it to continue to have an impact even though I'm now less involved on the overall operations. And the second piece was I felt like I finally had something, I felt a conviction that I had something to say. Before, I'm like, I don't, I was still in that place, the story of my brother, Mm -hmm. where something was a little bit constipated inside of me emotionally. (laughs) I don't feel constipated anymore. (laughs) I need some prunes. (laughs) Yeah. I do have a a particular gift, and I'm going to just own it right here on your podcast. Excellent. I'm waiting for it. I feel very emotional saying that I'm going to own my gift out loud. Okay. Um. I am a first college grad in my family. I am street smart more than I'm book smart. But when I was in undergrad studying political science, I would partner with these guys that did all the reading, but they didn't know how to 
synthesize the concepts into common language for the essay exams. So I would be their study partner and I'd say, okay, tell me what that book was about and that book was about and that book was about because I was, I paid my way through college so I didn't get to read all the books. So I would give, they would be my human cliff notes. And what I'm really good at doing is synthesizing information, adding in my own beliefs, but doing so in a way that is not righteous, that's not preachy, that's playful and funny, and says, contribute to my thinking. Right? Like, so I'm interested. Someone said, you're a translator. That's what they said. And I think that that's what I do. I'm, I'm sort of snarky and inappropriate as a therapist. I tell funny stories. Um, I pick on my relationship. I've been married for 20 years and I have two teenage sons. And to, I had this couple this week and they said, we just need to get over this thing. And I said, really? You need to get over that thing? Yeah, we just need to get over this thing. I said, well, lucky you. I've been still doing my thing with my husband for 20 years. I don't think we're ever going to get over it. And he he looked at me. I said, our work is to get you to embrace that you you have this one sticky fight. And I need (laughs) to teach you how to have it better. But I actually don't think this sticky fight is because anything's wrong with you or your partner. I think this is where you're really, really different. And it's a values-based fight. I don't think you're going to get over it. I think you're going to be having this fight until you go to the dirt, my friend. I'm just going to teach you how to do it better than you're currently doing it. With respect for each other. Yeah. And that's the book, in essence. That's, that's the way that I just told that story. That's the book. It's, it's about how we have become robotic as people. We've become objects, and we do not know how to feel feelings. It's amazing to me how many psychotherapy clients come in to see me and have never been given a primer on feelings. Brene's doing a great job on that, but I'm going to add to it. How do you feel a feeling? How do you share a feeling? And how do you listen to somebody else's feeling? And I'm going to use all these stories and lessons and mistakes that I've made on the sidewalk as I teach people the basics of how to be humane with other people without getting into all the polarization and da 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 I'll not give a nod to that. I have a some San Francisco. I've got a lot of social justice roots in me, but I don't believe that even in fighting oppression, like I was talking about, I was being an oppressive feminist rather than a relational, powerful feminist. I, I think that um, it all comes down to how we feel in a really tender way and how we share, right? And then how we listen to one another. So that's the book. Wow. I'm definitely eager to read that and to share it broadly. I mean, it's so relevant and I don't think it's ever not been relevant. (laughs) I mean, that kind of conversation, that kind of narrative storytelling around a concept so people can grasp it and apply it in their own lives. Cause every story, somebody would be like, oh yeah, 
I've been there. I remember that. Mm. Some part of it. I remember watching it mm. or I remember being in it, <laughs> whatever it is. Mm. Wow. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So one last thing. Yeah. I mean, one last question that's related. And I kind of mentioned this before. I'd love to hear a time when you were writing because mm-hmm. you've been working on this for a few months now mm-hmm. um, where you walked away from it, not sure. And you came back and you read it and went, damn, that's good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was actually the first big chunk of writing that I sent over to the writing coach. Cause she's a professional writer. And it was the first, it was the opener where what happens when we meet is she'll record our, conversations and then she'll actually take bits of our conversation and say this is some content for your book she said oh this story of tony needs to be the opener because i told her the story of this man that i used to to know in san francisco and she said that's the opener of your book and so i wrote it all down but it just felt so conversational so it's like hmm is this smart enough or is this Am I, I just wasn't sure how authentic it was, you know, or, or, or it's, I'm trying to put into words, but I do either one, one of two things when I'm writing, I try to appear really smart and clever, or I try to entertain. And so I wasn't sure. I'm like, am I in my centered self when I'm writing this? Am I really centered? And so I wrote it all down and then I left and then I came back and I read it and I was so moved by my own story, mm. partly because I'm telling yes. it about a person that I love, right? But, um, or that really touched me. Uh, but I remember, I remember calling Jen and I said, oh, I think I can do this. Like, I think... <laughs> That my talking like a regular person and not trying to be anything other than me is what's going to make this book good. She goes, yeah. And she even gets me to leave some curses in there. I'm like, I'm taking that out. She goes, no, you're not. I'm like, okay. Because I say some shocking things sometimes. She goes, don't do it. Just be all the the way you show up in the room with your couple's therapy clients. You have to bring that whole Tracy into the book. I'm like, all right. Yes. So I'm taking a risk because, man, I can be a little out there sometimes. <sighs> Tell me about it. I remember being so nervous about my book publishing. And I realized, and this will probably resonate with you given your relationship with your brother and probably your spouse. I realized the night before it was going to be launched. So it was, we, it's a whole other story. I'm sitting in the TV room with my husband and I realized he has never read a sentence of my book. There's a box full of them in the hallway waiting to go to this book launch event that we're having to give, to um, deliver a bunch of pre-ordered books to people here in Helena. And I realized he had never read a sentence of it. And I looked at him and I said, did I hurt your feelings with this? Was this not very nice of me to not give it to you to read first or to at least take you along for the ride as I was writing it? Mm. And he said, no, no, it's fine. Didn't hurt his feelings at all. And I said, okay. 
I realize that I'm so stressed about this. I am so like, I'm having these horrible dreams, exposure dreams, mm-hmm. you know, the kind where you're trying to go to the bathroom and there are no doors on the stall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for the four nights before I was literally waking up sweating. And I said, I realized that I'm nervous about this because I'm afraid you're not going to like my book. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid my brother is going to think it's stupid. Mm-hmm. I don't care about anybody else reading it, what they think, mm. but you two care what you think. And he looked at me and you're going to love my husband. When you hear this, <laughs> he said, I might not like your book and that's okay because I might not be your audience. What I do know is that you have an audience, an active, engaged, loving audience, and that You are going to help a lot of people with this book, but I may not be your audience. And I'm proud of you for accomplishing this. This is a big deal. What an honest, non-bullshit answer he gave you. (laughs) I thought you were going to say something really touchy-feely. I'm like, okay. (laughs) This is why we've been married 25 years. I need the honest. I don't don't want the bullshit. I can see right through it. So um, I, I hear you and I, I get this sense of vulnerability at putting it out there with the curse words, with the things that you think might be the thing that will turn somebody off. And I am telling you right now, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. because the people who read it, that it resonates with, it is going to make their lives better. I appreciate you saying that. And I also feel proud that I'm also writing it for me. Like, I think I'm going to, I'm not, I don't want to be Pollyanna and say, I don't want people to read it. I want people to read it. I have an audience in mind. I have all that stuff, but um, I'm also looking forward to being transformed by the writing of it. Mm-hmm. And that's going to feel like a really cool reward. It does. Uh, everyone I know who's written a book, whether it's published or not, there is that sense of transformation in, in the writing itself. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited for this book. I'm so excited for you. You're the first person I've talked to about it in public. So it's going to be a while. It'll take a a year before it's out. That's why I'm not talking about it too much, but. Well, it'll be relevant. (laughs) It doesn't matter when it's published. It'll be relevant. And I am looking forward to it. And for our listeners, um, if they want to learn more about you, follow you, um, keep an eye on when this book is, when you start actually sharing bits about it and pre-orders in a year, um, what is the best way to follow what you've done, what you're doing? Yeah, two ways. There are two websites to go to. The first is my Tracy Rubel website. And so it's T-R-A-C-I-R-U-B as in boy, L-E.com. And it has links to all the social media, although I'm, I'm ambivalent about social media right now. So go to my <laughs> website <not> alone. <laughs> um, and follow Sidewalk Talk, the listening project. It's still active. Maybe some of your listeners want to start a chapter. It's all volunteer nonprofit. We just sit on sidewalks and listen to strangers. It's really fun. It's uh, sidewalk-talk.org. Sidewalk-talk.org. And for our listeners, you don't have to rush and stop and hit pause or whatever. We will have these links in the blog post associated with the podcast at elkinsconsulting.com. And remember, it's Tracy with an I, 
and names are important. That was part of how we met. <laughs> I forgot about that. It <laughs> <laughs> was one of our first interactions. I realized I misspelled her name and I was mortified. And she said, it's okay. It's, it's an unusual spelling. I said, it's not okay with me. Names are important. They're, as much as our identity is fluid, our authenticity is fluid, our names are important and, and it, they're meaningful. So anyway. Well, you, you, you got a hall pass because I always secretly wished my mother spelled my name with a Y. <laughs> I told you, I think I mentioned this because I always wanted to get those little pre-made license plates with your name on it when you were like at the 7-Eleven or the grocery store. And I never could because I had a weird spelling. I'm like, oh, thanks, mom. <laughs> so I don't get upset when people spell my name wrong. The only wow. time I, I is, is if it's a telemarketer, I'm like, oh, you're trying to sell me something. <laughs> yes. When they, when they call my house and ask for Robert for my husband, I'm like, eh, nope, not going to happen. Oh, don't tell anybody. Now Google just heard me say that and that's oh, going to no. change everything. Darn it. Just wrecked it. Well, you didn't say his <laughs> actual name, so you're okay. No, no, no. Tracy, this has been such a pleasure and I really appreciate the time you're taking and the vulnerability that we've shared. And um, I just, I'm just so grateful that we met and that you shared that, that comment on my post about your brother, because I, I feel like I would have missed something important had we not met. It was a little magical serendipity moment on LinkedIn of all places. It was. Oh, I have a lot of them on LinkedIn. It yeah. can be, it can be a magical place, but I, you have to it's choose. Better than, it's better than others for sure. Yes. Well, you get out of it what you put into it. And that day we, we, all three of us, Charlotte Witten Camp, you and I, we, I think we got out of it what we put into it that day. Yeah, for sure. So thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. I'm putting some finishing touches on a new course. Get the offer, Job Interview Storytelling, that will be available online in early fall 2022. It is so important that this course is truly relevant, helpful, and useful for my clients. So I'd love your help. Would you please email me at sarah at elkinsconsulting.com or complete the form that's linked on the blog post associated with this podcast episode to add your ideas for the course? I'd love to know your biggest challenges when it comes to job interviews, so the content of my online course is exactly what you need. I appreciate your help. Thanks in advance. Now listen to me, honey, while I say, how could you tell?